0: Hello and welcome to The Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by John Potter, uh, who is a Lib Dem counsellor and founder and one of the hosts of the excellent Lib Dem Podcast. Welcome to Debated, John.
1: Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, what made you decide to make The Lib Dem Podcast?
1: Uh, well, actually, it, like most things, it's to do with uh, campaigning, <laughs> usually. That um, at the time, um, the Lib Dems were uh, about to start their presidential campaigns on who was going to become the next president. And Richard Kemp, a good friend of mine, obviously started the podcast as well, was thinking, well, he was thinking about having a run for it. Uh, and so, we and obviously, he knew he'd probably be up against Mark Pack, who already has a podcast. And we thought, well, what's a way we could do? And we thought, well, why don't we just set up our own? And in the end, Richard didn't go for it. Uh, by the time we'd even, I think, recorded the first episode, I'm not, I think he had already thought, well, he's probably not going to have time to do it. But we enjoyed it so much, we kept on going. And we and the, the podcast we've released uh, today was our 100th podcast. So, and it's been going on. So it, uh, it started off as a bit of fun. And now we, we enjoyed it so much, being able to have a rant that we kept on going. <laughs> It's interesting you should say
0: that because uh, this will be like the 110th episode of debated so you know uh, <laughs> rather similar we trajectory
1: yeah i think we started virtually the same month or something yeah. like that it was it, it was just after the i think it was like june 2019 or something like that yeah
0: yeah because our first one um was uh with alistair carmichael funnily enough discussing the um local elections so yeah 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 that's right um, so uh, what kind of um, things do you feel that you have learned from doing the podcast that uh, you don't think you would have learned otherwise? What what sort of like conversations have sparked things that you thought, oh, well, I, I didn't know about that. Or there's something that you've learned that has changed your perception of uh, politics. I
1: think it's, most of it time, it's stuff you take for granted, and you have you have no idea whether that's to do with obviously we've had lots of uh, Lib uh, conversations to do with race, etc., or, mm. or the problems that women face in trying to get represented, or also it, whether it's a particular issue as well. I mean, Lib Dems are very policy wonky, mm. but actually there are lots of groups advocating lots of different positions that sometimes don't get their voice heard whatsoever so I remember something like the, the Lib Dem Seekers of Sanctuary group which is all about helping refugees and their plight and the work they do was, was really interesting actually and because they don't because they're a tiny group you know there are as you know political parties have groups within groups within them and not all of them get a particular high platform um, particularly when there's no conference so conference is normally their shop window to say look we're here come and sign up And that didn't happen, obviously, last year because of coronavirus. So those conversations were brilliant. They were were really good. And actually, one of the best things about going to conference is actually going to some of these fringe events um, where you can talk to the Lib Dem Association of Engineers and Scientists about their their knowledge about flooding control or Mm -hmm. something like that because they have experts in that field. And we were missing out on that. So having these people come to us uh, and talk has been brilliant. Uh, But, yeah, but also just... Sometimes it's just being a voice there for people. So, cause there's a lot of areas, if we're being brutally honest, where Lib Dems aren't a massive powerhouse of politics in Mm -hmm. in Britain. And actually, it's been really pleasant to hear some of the stories come out of places which are saying, I'm so glad the Lib Dem podcast has been there to help someone on their own who just feels like it's me versus a county full of Tories or a city full of Labour members. And actually being there to help has been great. It's been wonderful.
0: Um, now, as a uh, local councillor yourself, and um, before the podcast started, you were dealing with some um, council business. Obviously, you will have come into contact with the um, effects that people have had regarding the pandemic and regarding coronavirus. From your perspective as someone who is in local government, how well do you think the government have dealt with the pandemic?
1: Terribly. Utterly, <laughs> utterly, shamefully bad. I, I, th- it's interesting that people are praising the vaccine rollout Mm -hmm. and because that's the one bit where the government said okay we know the nhs can do this let's leave them to do it and it's where when the government has got involved they've almost screwed up every single part of this the fact is we're still talking about whether we should uh, have quarantine hotels when people come into this country we're nearly a year behind some of the countries that have uh, uh, that have done it right from the start Mm -hmm. and you look at i mean everyone uses new zealand I, i was I was very lucky to be able to go to Taiwan a few years ago, and they were already doing these sorts of uh, heat checks because they had had SARS and MERS mm. in the past, and they've had seven deaths. It might have actually just gone up to eight over the entire course of this pandemic, and their their population there's got there are more dense population than we are in Britain, and they're right by the epicenter, <laughs> you know, the right yeah. next to yeah. China, uh, and so. I don't think the government could have handled this much worse if they had tried. Um, and that's bore out by all the statistics, you know, the, the economic consequences. And because also you look at something, I'm a huge rugby fan, mm. massive rugby fan. And the idea that stadiums full of people enjoying their rugby in New Zealand have been going on since the summer. And their economy is kicking back into gear because of that. And what by, by fudging your response to it, and the government just doesn't seem to know what they want to do, whether it's protect the economy or deal with the health issue, if you dealt with the health issue, your economy would have been bouncing back by now. Instead, mm-hmm. we've got the worst of all worlds. Uh, and as a council, it's been really frustrating. You know, I've been very lucky that, I, as a leader of my group on Preston City Council, I've been invited with the chief exec and the leaders of the other two parties as well, um, just to assess... Uh, how it's been going on on a basically on a fortnightly basis and it's just been chaotic you know when we were doing decent track and trace locally they decided to stop and give it to Circo then the quality of it fell off a cliff it's it's been really frustrating Um, and to the point where and it's been a weird I think it's now starting to change it's starting to change maybe in the autumn where very overt criticisms of the government started coming out, and I think, hmm. and now I think it's it's almost fair game on the on the government. No, no one's no one criticizing the key workers or anything like that, but the, the the level of incompetence from this government has been staggering. Now you mentioned Taiwan there, and um, we've had
0: uh, people involved in um, uh, different policy groups coming on the podcast before who have praised um, South Asian countries for their use of technology in terms of combating the pandemic. Do you think that the reason that technology hasn't been as utilised in Britain uh, in comparison to those countries is simply because the government uh, weren't able to to utilise the technology properly and fully understand the implications of how to use the technology? Or, as some people have argued, do you think it's because people in the UK are perhaps more uh, averse to using tech than people in other countries?
1: I think I wouldn't say they're adverse using tech. I think I think UK tech rollout is actually okay. Mm. I mean, what the government got wrong is A decided that they knew better than uh, app developers about producing an app. You know, we wasted months and months and months designing our own app that then didn't work. Yeah. And, and how much money the and time was lost in it. And as we've seen from this pandemic, every time you delay, it costs lives later. Uh, and so that was a, a category. Clismic mistake they made. And then, and what happened is because that was so late, it went because public compliance then dropped. As soon as the Dominic Cummins incident happened, you saw public compliance drop. And whereas if we'd had an app in place beforehand, uh, it w- it, who knows what we would have done, you know, because at the moment, I just think trust in uh, test and trace, in the tiers, everything just got smashed out out of the park as soon as I- But... I will say about South Asian countries, and I'm lucky enough to have um, been to Japan as well, is actually there is a cultural difference in those countries in terms of if you're ill, you wear a mask. You know, and that, you know, and and it's the whole bowing, not shaking hands and all the rest. These kind of cultural traditions, of course, which naturally stop the spread of virus. And we have seen just recently, this is probably one of the, 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 most I mean, definitely the best flu seasons but actually one of the the least uh, dangerous flu seasons we've had because we are doing these things that south asian countries have done for so long to reduce the spread of uh, infectious diseases
0: i mean what kind of like long-term impact do you think that this is gonna have on the uk do you think that if there is another um, global pandemic that we are going to be better prepared do you think that we have learned lessons or do you think that even after um, coronavirus is hopefully dealt with, which hopefully will be soon, we're still going to be in a poor place in terms of dealing with um, uh, pandemics like this, which we weren't properly prepared for in the first
1: place. Uh, firstly, you're right, we weren't properly prepared. And it is very noticeable that in 2012, no, it's 2016, beg your pardon, uh, <laughs> the government decided to um, not. Uh, do its pandemic review again or uh, and so we we weren't particularly well placed to deal with it although we, we we have certain benefits and it shouldn't be having a national health service really helps um you know and you look at the a, a federalized uh, and state-driven um health service in america and the coordination that's just a nightmare so we have had things that go in our advantage um but it is important that this we knew this was going to happen at some point viruses are a part of human life throughout the ages yeah. and they will be going forward so this isn't going to be the last pandemic we have and the interconnectivity of travel you know the fact we are getting closer and closer to animal habitats where diseases can cross over um we will have another pandemic in the future now hopefully we have learned from this to do it. but i have real worries that this the conservative government doesn't seem to learn from its existing mistakes and there's this talk about when should a public inquiry I'm very proud of the fact that Lib Dems were calling for a public inquiry last summer because, hope, and because we've seen repeats of delays before going into lockdown. I mean, the fact is just the ridiculousness of January where we had mm. school children go back for one day to then schools be closed, mm. just suggests that this government, it doesn't know where to stick, whether to stick a twist with it. That, and I think that's where their problem comes. They the, 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 the so doubt themselves in everything they do that they delay and then make it worse. Um but whether the Johnson government can grasp that nettle and really say, look, we we messed up, I'm not sure they, they have it in them to do it. I really don't. And maybe that's me being really cynical, but they are a government without talent uh, the, hmm. from what you see. And you know, if for C- Chris Galing will probably be Prime Minister next year or something <laughs> like that, but just to, <laughs> to emphasize the point, <laughs> I mean hopefully not. Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Praetor Rains. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Praetor Rains have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their LibDem Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Praetorains are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Praetorains website at praetorains.co.uk slash liberal democrats. This podcast has been sponsored by the Katura Coffee Club, the UK's most environmentally friendly coffee club. There are over 400 independent roasters in the UK, each one crafting coffee in their own unique style. Katura Coffee Club works with some of the best to take you on a voyage of coffee discovery. The Katora Coffee Club delivers ethically sourced and independently roast coffee directly to your door. Each month, you'll receive between two and four bags of coffee and their monthly extract magazine. Even better for Libden podcast listeners, use the code BETTERCOFFEE to to save 5% on subscriptions and gift boxes for a limited time only. All Katora Coffee Club boxes are carbon negative and offset the CO2. So why not do some good, enjoy some great coffee, and check out the website, www.katoracoffeeclub.com. Now, back to the podcast.
0: You mentioned um, federalism uh, there in the US, and of course there's a, a strong federalistic uh, tradition in the Lip Dems. And I mean, because of the pandemic, we've been seeing people making arguments that, you know, we should try and devolve more power and give people, you know, in regional areas um, more help and more support because the government have just failed so spectacularly uh, during the pandemic. And thus we should give more power to local areas. Is that an argument that you agree with?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 the the centralised nature of, of Britain is, is poor. Uh, And and to be fair, all parties have kind of got this wrong. Uh, Labour centralised a lot when they came in, uh, as as did the coalition and the Tories as well. The idea of taking power away from those local centres. I mean, basically, local councils have the financial pressures on now. They do virtually nothing more than statutory obligations. Uh, Whereas actually giving them a, a chance to succeed, but also, and this is where the British public have to accept this if they want to do that They have to have things have to have a chance to fail and this is the thing that you accept that if you give lots of areas lots of power to make their own choices some areas will screw up but generally you'll have a far more greater success rate than those one areas that mess up and actually those areas will be better I mean, then I mean, you've got to look, and it's not just, I mean, I believe in obviously far greater evolution for Scotland and Wales as well, and Northern Ireland, uh, because I don't think you can stem that flow of nationalism without it. Um, and, you're, and actually, if you look at within Scotland, the centralising nature of the SNP has been appalling as well. You know, whether that's reducing all of Scotland to one police force or whatever else, it just, the SNP has done a really bad job or, or a good job, depending on which which way you're politically leaning, of centralising. They have centralised a lot of Scotland and made it poorer because of it. Um, but that's not for me to tell Scotland how to do. It. That's for the Scottish people to do it on their own, and that's mm. what those elections are about in May. And I hope some of the shine that's come off the SNP is 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 now plain to see because the SNP have got away with it because you've always had something worse in London. Mm. And actually, now I think a lot of people are thinking, wow, our education has been really poor in Scotland. Our health is really poor and our Covid response hasn't been great either. Maybe the SNP and Nicola Surgent are good at communicating, but not great at governing.
0: Now, you mentioned the SNP there. And of course, this year we're going to be seeing, hopefully seeing some uh, elections across the UK, parliamentary elections in Scotland and Wales. And just to focus on Scotland for the moment. What kind of state do you think uh, the Scottish Lib Dems are in? And what kind of case do you think that they should be making at this year's elections?
1: I I mean, I I actually think the Scottish Lib Dems are actually in a fairly healthy spot, to be absolutely Mm. honest with you. I mean, if it wasn't for Joe Swinson losing a seat by 100 votes, it would be the Lib Dems the only party to gain against the SNP last year. Mm. Obviously, the SNP still had a great election wiping out Labour and the majority of Tory seats... Um, But the Lib Dems are the only people who could probably beat the SNP in a whole range of seats in Scotland because Labour's toast. Labour, and I think they know they're toast in Scotland as well. The Tories are so unpopular with the Johnson government that they are not going to be the sensible non-nationalists in Scotland. It has to be the Lib Dems because the Greens are for independence as well. So the Lib Dems have a really unique selling point in scotland and some brilliant candidates which i've had the great pleasure of interviewing quite a few of them um but like all politics it's it's getting that message out and i think that's where lib dems and any non-governing party or 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 at least anyone who isn't the big two parties struggles it's like you're not going to get the airtime, so you've got to win the ground war Um, On the,
0: um, again, on Scotland, um, we've seen um, polling data out recently, which suggests that more and more in in terms of polling data, we're seeing a majority of Scottish people favouring independence, even though that they also think it will um, result in economic damage to Scotland. How do you fight against that kind of uh, feeling from a, a, a unionist perspective?
1: Well, sometimes, obviously, the, the, if you look at the, the the headline data, it says you know fifty six percent are in favour of independence or something like that. But actually, yeah. what are the reasons behind that? And we saw that in the UK, in like kind of British, in English nationalism, people were saying a lot. Well, you know, it's 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 an immigration issue, and that drove up English nationalism. When actually, it wasn't an immigration issue. It was about housing. Or it was about jobs, and people and people who wanted to use that as a way of as a foil for their mm-hmm. argument. Now. People in Scotland, I mean, again, it's not for me to tell. I mean, I know I'm from just the other side of the Scottish border when I was born in Cumbria. Yeah. But it, but when when I think when it comes to the brass tacks, are they absolutely fervent pro-independence? I'd say probably not. Obviously, there is a chunk that is. That's, you'd be naive to say that. It isn't. I think most people just think in Scotland, we can do better without this London government. And you know what? I'm in Lancashire, and I think I could do better without this government in, in London. So yeah. I have a sympathy for that argument, but I think it is because of other issues rather than independence. And I think the, the bleak fact is whatever the, the SNP arguments they had on Brexit, as in, you know, we're better off as part of the EU, those arguments are still the same with the UK. You know, for, for Scotland to leave the UK would decimate their economy and hurt us all but it would hurt Scotland the most. Now, you mentioned Brexit there,
0: and of course we are, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the UK formally leaving the European Union now. And we have seen um, some disruption both in Northern Ireland and in Kent. Mm. What do you think that the Lib Dem position on Europe should be? Do you think at the moment it should be campaigning to rejoin now? Or do you think that it should be uh, an argument to join something like after? What do you think the argument should be? I,
1: I, I remember we had this policy debate uh, at the Lib Dem conference in autumn, in, in September. And actually, I don't think there's a Lib Dem anywhere in the country that doesn't believe we should rejoin. But I think the vast majority of Lib Dems, including myself, think we know the time isn't mm. right right now. And there's a, there's a practical and a political point to that. Firstly, the, I mean the point is, if we just say like rejoin now, we've only just left. I mean mm. we're starting to see the consequences of it. But then, if you have a tin ear to it, then people will just go, well, you were never, you, you, you've, you've haven't given it a chance to either succeed or fail. And, and I get the argument, or the rejoin now argument, that so, like a, a minority of Lib Dems have, because the, we know Brexit's going to be horrendous. We're seeing some of the consequences of it now. If you know it's horrendous, stop it as soon as you can and change it. But from a political strategy point of view, if you're just banging the drum constantly, it must rejoin now. You are probably going to push that further away. And I think what Lib Dems have to do is start working towards how we can get a closer union to Europe, whether that is an economic one, getting back in the single market, getting back in the customs union, and then working towards full membership. And I think that's where Lib Dems have to be. And I think actually, to be honest, I think the vast majority of Lib Dems are there. I think we know with that uh, 2019 general election result that the, the conservatives had a mandate to do what they've done. I mean... I always, um, I always chuckle at some people who said, well, we voted for something. Yeah, mandates change, you know, and I I have, there's all sorts of things I want to campaign on, whether that's prison reform, drug reform, whatever, that so far has not happened, but eventually I think will happen, and it will only happen if people like me keep campaigning for it. So, you know, and you can say that about any issue, whether that's uh, uh, civil rights, you know, women's right to vote, that change didn't just happen, people fought for it. Um, now, we've talked about uh, the Scottish parliamentary
0: election, but, of course, there are going to be uh, elections for the uh, Senate in Wales this year as well. Mm-hmm. What kind of um, shape do you think the Welsh Lib Dems are in?
1: Um, I think they're all right. I, I mean, I, I, I have to say that. I'm, I'm friends with the chief exec of the Welsh Lib Dems. So, <laughs> 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 so I can't say anything different. No, no, but, uh, again, it, it's we were at a low ebb. I think everyone admit that. You know, for the first time... Uh, for, for, this is the first, other than just after the 2017-2019 election, um, this is the first time Lib Dems haven't had an MP in Wales for, like, 100-and-something years or something like that. Uh, Jane Dodds was elected in the Brecon by-election, which then broke it up, and then she lost the seat again. Um, so there's no there's no way of getting around it. The Lib Dems are at a low point in Wales. But, again, speaking to people, they know they can change that. And they, you know, the Labour the Labour government... Um, Senate, the labor Rank Senate in, in Wales, isn't universally liked. You know, Plaid Cymru certainly isn't the power that SNP are. What happens with Tory voters? Because Wales has a fairly strong Conservative vote. Mm. What happens to that in terms of what's happened with coronavirus? Has that, lo- has that weakened somewhat? Um, and even things like UKIP were quite healthy in, in Wales vote-wise. And so where does that vote go now that UKIP is kind of basically disintegrated into mm. a a, a rabbling, uh, <laughs> chattering uh, mass of grumps. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but the, the Welsh Lib Dem, I mean, we would expect to make gains. Obviously, Kirsty Williams has been a brilliant uh, education minister. And I think maybe the Lib Dems nationally should have done more to promote Kirsty's work, uh, working in coalition with the Labour administration. Um, But I'd expect the the Welsh Lib Dems to make gains and have not just the one seat in the Assembly, but have uh, more than that as well.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, Plaid there, and, of course, there is a a Welsh uh, nationalist movement in Wales, Mm. but it's not on the same scale as the one in Scotland. Why do you think that there isn't the same kind of appetite for Welsh independence in Wales as there is for Scottish independence in Scotland?
1: Um, You know what? I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. Maybe, I think... Um, I, I, actually, you know what? I have no idea. I mean, every country moves in its own in its own speed, don't mm-hmm. they? So, and we have no idea that referendum in Scotland was an absolute lightning rod. If you look at where the SNP were before that referendum to where they were in twenty, so the the what did they have eight MPs mm, in yeah. twenty ten or something yeah. like that, and then went up to over forty a year after the referendum, that was an absolute, like, kind of turbo bolt to their campaign um, but like I said, I, th- I generally think the- there's a population difference between the two and it- you can't really conflate one as the other and don't forget there's also a movement in Wales to get rid of the Senate completely mm. so I kind of revert, so Wales, the-, the Welsh Lib Dems are kind of stuck in the middle of where we don't agree with that side and we don't agree with that side because one wants uh, less control for Wales. One wants absolute independence and the Lib Dems are in the middle saying, actually, we want greater devolution. Wales can look after more of its uh, finances and more of its uh, more of its policies itself, but we, again, think it's better as part of the union. Mm. Um,
0: now, of course, as you mentioned, um, the turbocharging in terms of representation in the UK Parliament of the SNP. Over the past few general elections, the Lib Dems, in, in terms of MPs, have fallen, yep. how much of an impact do you still think the
1: coalition has on the Lib Dems of today? Not actually, you know what, generally not a right lot. Mm. I mean, I, before the 2019 local elections, I clocked up, I had knocked on the doors of 4,000 people. Mm. And how many of them, which I call coalition bashers, mm. people, <laughs> uh, uh, did I come across? Very few, very few. Um, I think the problem what Lib Dems had is 2015, was such an almighty shellacking we got. And we got absolute, and we came, we we weren't just beaten out of the positions we had. We were going from like maybe first or second down to third or fourth. Mm. And that takes time to recover. There's no quick and easy way of parties recovering from that. Now, what did happen in 2019 is us becoming second place in 91 seats now. Mm. So that is a springboard to do actions. And anyone who does campaigning knows it's never about one election it's usually a two or three election strategy. And if you look at someone like Daisy Cooper and how they took uh, St Albans, that wasn't done on a parliamentary level, although it was in the end. It was done by winning it locally. And that, and that isn't going to change. You know? So we know we have to win, win back council seats. We have to win back uh, counties. We have to win mayoralities. And, and, so, and it's graft. There's no... no, And I have a real issue with some Lib Dems who who expect it all to be done from HQ. You know, we have 11 MPs, some brilliant staff, but they are not going to suddenly win your local election for you. So in these elections that are coming up in May or whenever they'll be this year, the Tories seem determined to make it in May, despite all logic. Um, These are the biggest elections since 1973. And how much has the national Lib Dem Party played in me being elected five times very little i, I do, it doesn't go on my leaflets it's down to the graft you put in and so lib dems or anyone else from any other party regardless who you are if you're a green and independent labor in a tory area tory in a labor area if you you can only win that by grafting you are not there's no there's no magic bullet to uh, to win an election other than graft now looking forward um
0: to the future. What do you think uh, will be the position for the Lib Dems will be
1: come the next general election? Uh, What what do you think, what kind of election result do you think we will get or where do you think we'll be in a party in the run up to those elections? Well, both. Uh, In the run, I expect it, it it is interesting. I mean, one thing that we don't know since the local elections were canceled last year is where Lib Dem support is at, how, how strong we are. You get the national polls, which, as we know from anything, a national poll isn't really significant. You see that in the American election. And Biden, how big was Biden's lead in the national polls? But it came down to local work in different states. That's what won it. You know, the only one, Georgia, because people like Stacey Abrams worked her socks off and and got a ground war to win that. So, but we haven't had an assessment of that. And this is why there's, there's unease, within Lib Dems not knowing what our vote is doing. Also, we can do phone canvassing, we can do other ways of getting in touch, but that's not the same as thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Lib Dem activists knocking on doors, and then we can get a sample of generally how we're doing. Um, so it's difficult to say with any certainty. You would like to think that this, the incompetence of the Tory government is going to lead to Lib Dems having success particularly in the counties, because it's important to remember that 2017, the last time the counties were up was a really high mark for Theresa May. And then she quickly lost it with the general election. That was two weeks later when she lost her majority. But those counties were a brilliant set of results for the Tories. So, and that changes the narrative. And so if, Lib Dems have a lot of good breakthroughs, take control of councils, have huge swings like we did in 2019 for those local elections. Then suddenly the party's on on a roll, and suddenly we can think, okay, we can start thinking about where we um, where we're going to target uh, in 2024. Is it? That, that's the yeah, next yeah, to, election. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 2024. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm forgetting which year it is. So that will be <laughs> interesting, um, and it will be down to that really. I mean, we have lots of parliamentary seats that we are quite close you know and I was thinking and I don't think Labour will make the same mistake they made in 2019 by diverting resources just to scupper Lib Dem versus Tory um fights Mm. Uh, I mean I was in Hazel Grove a marginal Lib Dem Tory seat and on that day on 2019 there were Labour activists going out purposely just basically so Lib Dems didn't win the seat Mm. and and I think under Keir Starmer You know, there's always going to be Lib Dem versus Labour fights. You know, suddenly the the Lib Dems and (laughs) Labour in places like Hull and Liverpool aren't suddenly going to start holding hands. We know that, but I have a feeling that Labour think there's no way they can get into power without the Lib Dems because with Scotland being a dead area for them now, Lib Dems being second in those 91 seats, there's no realistic way of Labour being back in power without the Lib Dems hitting the Tories across those seats. Um, And so I hope that 2024 Lib Dems will have a bounce back. Um, But, I mean, there are some Lib Dems, I think, who thought we were going to get 200 seats after after the local elections in 2019 and the Euro elections where we did really well. That isn't based in practicality. There were different types of election. But you'd expect Lib Dems to do better um, because I think it was Tim Farron said, no political party has, a, has a, a right to survive, and if we suddenly think that the Tories are going to collapse on their own, they won't. We have to we have to take those Tory seats off them.
0: Mm. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast, John. It's been great to have you on, and I've got one uh, final question. Now you mentioned earlier that you're a big rugby fan, uh, so my final question to you is: if you had to make either a rugby league side. Or a rugby union side solely out of politicians,
1: past or present, who would you pick? Right. Wow. Uh, 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 well, you want to pick someone. You know, it's easy to pick someone like Alistair Carmichael, who's about six foot eight, and <laughs> and put it and put him in your side. Um, but yeah. Uh, I don't know really. You'd imagine like John Prescott, you know, he'd be like he'd be like a a hooker in, in rugby union, just always always <laughs> ready for a scrap. <laughs> um, but no, it's um, no. I mean, actually, the, I'm trying to think. I, I can't think of many now. You tell you the truth, but you know, it's those kind of you. You want people, and Lib Dems are probably a good analogy for uh, rugby union. You've got to you've got to you get hit you've got to pick yourself up and get back your head in awkward positions <laughs> that you didn't expect. Um, but, and, but you know, a rugby analogy I did use, this is one I did use in the uh, in a general election, is that you've got to earn the right to win. And in, in rugby, there's a, there's a term that you've got to earn the right to go wide in terms of you've got to do the nasty, gritty, mm-hmm. ugly stuff in the middle of the park before your winger can go off and get the glory. And I think that's where the Lib Dems are right now. We are in the gnarly tusslely bit where you've just got to scrap and get your hands on the ball and do what you can so eventually the mps can go on and win stuff and i think that's where that's my probably the best rugby analogy i've got for you
0: i <laughs> know oh, i think it's a great analogy um thank you once again for coming on the podcast john if people want to find out more about you and the Lib Dem podcast where should they go uh well
1: you can follow me on all social networks at john potter ld uh, the podcast is available at uh Lib Dem pod uh, that is and you can download it as a podcast from all the places you normally get your podcast or it's also you can watch it on our facebook page our youtube channel uh, and you know thank you very much i really appreciate coming on and your time and being a good interview thank you excellent thank you for coming on